Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, my guest is Shushma Malik. We're talking to Shushma today about her new book. Um, Shushma is a lecturer in classics at University of Roehampton, and at the end of last year, Cambridge University Press published her incredibly impressive book, The Nero Antichrist, Founding and Fashioning a Paradigm. Shushma, congratulations on the book, and thank you for coming on to the show to talk about it. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Crawford. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. But before we talk about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? As we were saying before we began recording, it's not everyone develops an interest in the eschatological identity of Nero. How did you come to do so? Absolutely. (laughs) Yes, no, it's a slightly odd thing to develop an interest in, isn't it? Um, No, I'm a Roman historian. So I studied at the University of Bristol for all three of my degrees. And when I was an undergraduate, I took a course on Nero that had um, a small part in it um, about Nero's sort of legacy in Christian history and his interpretation in the Bible as well as, as how it was presented. Um, and back then, it was something that sort of stuck in the back of my mind and, and was something that I thought would be interesting to look at in more detail. I, I wondered how secure that evidence was, what what led people to interpret Nero in that way at that time. Um, but then I forgot about it um, completely, started doing my master's on another Roman emperor, Elagabalus, who's also fascinating, um, but then came back to the PhD level and thought, well, actually, this is a good time with the amount of space I had, with the brilliant supervisor I had to um, be able to explore this in more detail and really um, start to understand why it is Nero became was used in this way, because it, it is, of course, unusual to see the legacy of really anyone um, go uh, in, in such a particular direction for such a prolonged period of time. So it was a... Um, a sort of slow burner uh, to get to Nero's eschatological adversary, but I got there in the end. <laughs> Good. Well, it might have been a slow burner, but it was worth the wait. Uh, and <laughs> this new book is, is really compelling and, and really interesting. Um, Thank you. So, 
as we work our way towards the book, could you tell us a little bit about how the early Christians felt about the Roman Empire? Just generally to, to set the scene before we talk about Nero and the Antichrist figure uh, particularly. Sure. Yeah, so in terms of when we're talking about Nero, we're in the first century AD. Um, he was emperor from 54 to 68. So we're in the very early period after the, the foundation of Christianity. Um, of course, you know, we, our dating system is based on, on that, that rough idea. But if you think that, um, Christ was crucified probably under the emperor Tiberius in the thirties, if we're sort of using a rough, rough dating chronology, um, and then we're only about 20, 30 years later when we get to, to Nero. So we're still in very early, early stages. But we do have, you know, some bits of evidence, things like the letters of St. Paul, for example, are very useful for trying to get a grip of, like you say, how Christianity was perceived in this period and also how Christians perceived the Roman Empire. Um, we are on scant evidence. There is some. We're on <laughs> limited evidence. But um, there was um, but what comes through Paul's letters and what comes through our sources is a sense of, um, on the one hand, uh, trying to live with the Roman Empire. So living with with the emperors. Um, Paul himself, for example, is a Roman citizen um, because of the uh, family that he comes from. And there is a um, an idea that, you know, Christians um, f can fit within particular parts of the established structure of, of, of the Roman Empire and do um, fit in. Um, however, there's also quite a number who probably don't um, or don't want to fit in. And part of the sort of perception of early Christianity um, from the uh, Roman or pagan perspective, I should say, because they're all Romans to some extent, um, or, or uh, freed uh, citizens or, or freed members of the free members of the Roman Empire. Um, it, there's a, an idea also that um, perhaps the established sort of civic structures that are based on on that are very related to pagan structures traditional greco-roman religion is political as well as it is um you know the way we would think of religion um and and christianity sits outside of that um it's not that that roman society couldn't take in christianity as a cult it certainly could it, you know there are lots of different eastern cults in particular that the roman empire um, and, and the rome uh, very successfully uh, syncretized into its own structures um part of perhaps the problem that started to emerge not necessarily this early on but certainly started to emerge with christianity in that sense was the idea of monotheism so um that a a, a god would want you to worship them and them alone um and that to a uh, pagan is a slightly odd concept, um, I think. And it's not alien. You've got um, Jews, of course, at, at this time as well. There's, there's, um, an, you know, a way for the Romans to deal with this. But um, as, as Christians in the early empire, um, if you wanted to, um, for example, make people, your religion known or try and convert people, that would be a very difficult process to, to go through from, um, you know, the perspective of a, a, a someone who is pagan who doesn't necessarily um quite understand the idea of conversion in, in that sense in the way that we think of it anyway as um you know adhering to just one god and and, and doing you know completely converting so there while there was a in the beginning a, an idea that the romans and the um and and, and christians should 
kind of live together she should be able to function um i think it's in in acts where um there's a, a line about um honor peter says that's supposed to have said honor the emperor um you know because because the emperor is is has been put on on the earth by you know that structure has been put on the earth by god so honor him and then you will receive your benefit once you have died and, and whoever needs judgment will be judged by god um so there is that sort of train train of thought but then there's also um perhaps the more uh a Pauline train of thought, which is also to do with being able to uphold Christian values in um, in a uh, in in a structure that doesn't necessarily um, understand exactly or um, isn't that familiar with what Christian values really are. Mm. And that takes us, I suppose, very nicely to think about Nero himself. So he comes to power roughly twenty years after the crucifixion of Christ, uh, and and he's gone by about. AD 68 and maybe we'll talk in a few moments about how that happens and 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 so really within what within within 30 years of the the crucifixion event we have the emergence of this emperor who comes to be seen as embodying so many of the the traits of this composite figure that that we call the antichrist um, whose personality and characteristics are drawn from so many different parts of that body of writing what wh why why did nero or how did Nero come to have such a negative view? And how did he come to be identified as this biblical antichrist figure? Okay, so exactly as you said, Nero is is very close in proximity to this this formative period in in um, Christianity to some extent. Not only um, in the first century. I mean, it's, for, Christian literature is still writing. You know, we've got Christian writers. We've got um, uh, ideas trying to formulate and, and fully kind of you know be articulated. You know, for another hundred years, two hundred years after after that as well. But we do have. Um, uh, what we have with Nero is so an emperor who um, was cl clearly sort of controversial in his time. Um, I don't think it's a case that, you know, everybody loved him. I don't think it's necessarily a case that everybody hated him either. I think like with um, most political figures we can think of, probably some people really liked him and some people really didn't. Um, what's interesting about Nero, though, is that... Um, from the sort of source tradition that we get that emerges after his death. So not necessarily when he was alive, because there is um, evidence, we have evidence of there being a very mixed reception for Nero in the histories. Um, a Jewish writer, in fact, named Josephus in the um, late first century, says uh, that there are many histories written of Nero. Some are good, some are bad, some loved him, some hated him, um, some were being sycophants, some, you know, were deliberately trying to character assassinate his character. You know, as we would expect, there are lots of different lots of different receptions of Nero. Um, what we have is the the very particular uh, sort of senatorial or imperial um, hostile tradition. Um, it's not uniformly hostile. There are some good bits you can pick out, certainly, but overall sort of, you know, um, not particularly pro-Nero <laughs> tradition um, that comes up, um, you know, about Seven, a couple of a generation and a couple of generations after his his reign. So here I'm talking about Tacitus, Suetonius, and Cassius Dio. There are three narrative sources. Um, Tacitus is writing under the Emperor Trajan. 
Suetonius, probably around the same time, Trajan Hadrian, um, and then Cassius Dio a little bit later. So we're talking late first, sorry, late second century, early third century under um, a, a different dynasty, the, the Severans. Um, so we do have um, a sort of much later um, establishing of a, a tradition about Nero. At the beginning, it was probably very mixed, but then one particular tradition that senatorial tradition gets uh, pushed forward and when we get to late antiquity by which I mean sort of the third fourth fifth centuries AD um, we start to get um, sort of potted histories if you like or potted biographies of emperors Um, these are things that uh, people who were just coming to literacy you know our our population of the empire is expanding um, lots of different types of people entering the army that sort of thing and to get you you know the the sort of um, potted histories of these emperors um it's very clear from those that the, the nero that emerges and the nero that emerges is the one that we know the the tyrant the the um completely uh, ma- uh maniacal image of a an ancient leader um that we still see sort of in in popular receptions today and that became the way of, of thinking about Nero and part of the reason I think why he then gets related to the Antichrist is because those uh, that idea of tyranny, the way that Nero encapsulates tyranny so wholly helps people who are converting to Christianity or who are of different from different social structures understand what an antichrist means an antichrist is destructive like an emperor can be destructive like nero can be destructive um and that's quite a powerful concept to play with as a um as for example a a, a a bishop or a someone who is delivering homilies or someone who is writing commentaries on on um earlier christian literature how do we understand these prophecies how do we understand the text we now call the Bible, but of course back then that canonical process was still going on. Um, how how do we make sense of Revelation? It's a difficult text. What do you, how do you do that? How do you relate that to a um, a general audience? Um, and Nero is extremely useful there for the reasons I've just outlined, but for one other reason as well, which is um, during his reign in AD sixty four, he there was a fire in Rome, and um, uh, a great number of buildings were destroyed, houses and, and so forth, shops. Um, and there were rumours going around because Nero was very enthusiastic about rebuilding Rome. It was sort of his his artistic dream, if you like, to be able to um, ar- architecturally plan the city. Um, and he did a very good job at it, even the hostile sources say so. But the, in, in, um, in his enthusiasm <laughs> um, for wanting to rebuild Rome, rumours started to uh, go around that he set fire to the city himself so that he could he could you know then carry out his grand architectural plan um and in order tacitus tells us in order to um uh, get rid of those rumors uh he decided to blame a group of people in rome who were not particularly popular who had sort of established themselves as as um sort of outliers of roman society they didn't quite um you know fit well with civic structures as we've, we've been talking about before people didn't quite know what to do with them and that was a group that was known as christians so tacitus tells us and um we so because then christians were killed by nero he um then was responsible for the first 
persecution, what was called a persecution, uh, but execution, really. The first execution of Christians um, since the crucifixion of Christ. And that is incredibly important to um, the way that Nero was then later understood. And you explain in the book that that's really the context or the supposed context for the deaths both of Peter and of Paul. And that, I suppose, leads us into a discussion of the death of Nero himself, because he too dies, or does he, uh, quite, so, quite soon after this. Could, could you just explain, as you do in the book, the circumstances around Nero's death and the stories that proliferated around that, and also perhaps um, move towards this idea of Nero, of pseudo-Neros, who return, uh, and perhaps tell us what that's all about. Yeah, so you're absolutely right to bring in Peter and Paul because that is an, again a very important part of this. It's um this this is established a bit later on, so kind of in the second century, I think is one of the first references we we see to this. But um in the Christian imagination, um I would say, are the the deaths of Peter and Paul get swept up with that bigger narrative of the persecution of of the execution of Christians. So. Peter is supposed to have been in Rome at the time, um, was and, and therefore caught up in in that that persecution. Um, Paul, of course, as we were talking about earlier, was a Roman citizen, so had particular rights and actually wasn't um, swept up in that particular episode. Um, although, like I say, later in the Christian imagination, he was included in it, um, but rather he, um, or in that same time period. Rather, he is executed by Nero because he has been arrested for inciting a riot, brought to Rome and um, and is executed. So, yeah, uh, Nero is responsible, is seen as is, is then made responsible for those um, for the deaths of two, uh, you know, founders of the Christian church as well, which is which is um, not great for his legacy. Um, and. Like you say, we have got also very interesting rumours about how Nero dies and what happens um, at his death. And they're interesting because um, in our three narrative histories, um, we don't have his death in Tacitus, unfortunately, because we've lost them and bits of the work that it would be in the annals. We don't have books, um, uh, most of book 16 or, or books after that. So we don't have the last two years of his reign. But um, in Suetonius and in Cassius Dio, his death is very straightforward, actually. He um, he he uh, is declared a public enemy by the Senate. Um, he knows that he has to flee. Um, and then he realises that he has to, um, if he doesn't commit suicide, then he will be killed by um, the Praetorian Guard. So he goes to um a, a, he goes to manages to get to a villa of his freedman um Phaon, um on the outskirts of the city and there um we get you know very uh, theatrical and imaginative death scenes in the um sources uh, which are wonderful to read but um he commits suicide with the help of one of his freedmen um, in the end and that seems fairly straightforward he has a funeral it's a public funeral um he is buried on the um esquiline i think it is with his uh with with his um natural father so not the emperor but his his natural natural family tomb a um, birth family tomb i should say and then uh he 
um he, so so that all seems fairly you know straightforward and not particularly problematic but when it does become what does become problematic is that in the east um we start to get people popping up saying nero is not dead i am nero <laughs> come follow me it's sort of spartacus but not quite um and we we have an account in tacitus actually in another another um book that he writes the histories which cover the years of the civil war um and and onwards um and we also have it in in cassius dyer and a little bit of a reference in suetonius as well um that there were two perhaps three of these people so immediately in the context of civil war you can sort of see why that might happen there's a civil war going on in rome um there are emperors who actually follow nero so um the first emperor in that period galba is very much the you know against nero he positions himself as a return to um you know not the republic he's still an emperor but something that's a bit more traditional in terms of roman values not the young youth of nero he's much older he's an established general you know that sort of thing um he's positioned himself that way but he only lasts for about six months the next two emperors the next two people who become emperors otho and vitellius um are both much more neronian otho was a very good friend of nero nero's second wife was married to otho at one point uh Popea. so their connection to nero is is quite close and and they see themselves as his successors um so in rome there's sort of a bit of a mix of a feeling of how to, what to do with nero i think still at, at this point so in the east we get someone popping up saying well i am nero and trying to come back to rome and and claim the throne essentially um he distinguishes himself as nero by being very good at doing things like playing the lyre which nero was as well um and um manages to amass a following um in the east because nero was probably very popular still in the east and um so we're talking sort of asia minor modern day turkey he comes through through there and then um eventually the roman army sort of deal with him quite promptly um he gets killed and um his body or his head the latin isn't quite clear get taken back to rome and everyone says oh that does look a bit like nero <laughs> and then um we sort of go go from there and that happens it's only really the first one that's that's sort of given the a, a proper go if you like that's taken seriously but afterwards it's a bit sort of well the a few odd people saying saying they're nero and they're dealt with very very quickly um certainly the sources sort of dismiss it as a um a a a, a, a sort of a weird occurrence um that is happening in the east probably due to nero's popularity probably due to the, the fact that this is the end of the first dynasty so augustus was the founder of the dynasty of the julio claudians nero was the fifth and last emperor in that dynasty and so that's a sort of watershed moment in what's going to happen politically what's going to happen in terms of the system of emperors the principate um and it's so it's not necessarily that surprising that it's nero that these things happen to also in the context of civil war um there's much more it's much easier to say i am nero i'm a, you know i i i didn't die i fled what you saw that funeral it was all a all a fake i actually fled and here i am i am back and and because of the confusion of civil war because of that context uh, perhaps someone thought that was the right time to do it but it certainly um as being the last person in the dynasty is calling to an end that period of of the julio claudians 
um, might possibly be why this happens um, with Nero rather than, um, you know, with anyone else. Mm. So the connection then is made very firmly in the minds of many Christian writers between Nero and this Antichrist figure. And your book explains that 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 holds for what the first four or five centuries and then gradually begins to dissipate. So why does Nero stop being the Antichrist? Yeah, yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's um it's it's uh Nero because of because that story that he was uh dead and then not dead gets changed into a sort of uh resurrection story. So uh, Nero raided Wewus, which means Nero returned from re- returned to life. Um so that translates quite nicely into the idea of someone who was um a, a, an emperor in Rome who died who will be resurrected at the last um uh, at the apocalypse essentially or, or in an eschatological context in the context of the end of the world to then come and fulfill um that role again that that persecutor role again that um a bringer of 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 the apocalypse the representative of the devil on earth. So that works really nicely um, as a way of, of, of talking about that. And the false Nero's, of course, play into that so wonderfully as well. Um, and but like you say, we do get this um, uh, this this spread of the idea of Nero in this way, fulfilling this role, coming back at the end times to um, to, to to bring about the apocalypse um, that carries on not uniformly accepted um some uh writers are more interested in that idea than others um lactantius for example you know talks about it in quite a lot of detail but um only it says only crazy people believe this um others are, are much more convinced um uh jerome for example when he's writing um a letter to um one of his correspondents a noblewoman um she's asked him um what does paul mean in two thessalonians when he says uh, the man of lawlessness the mystery of iniquity this um set, the paul's second letter to the thessalonians and he says well he means nero this is this is who Paul was talking about. This is who will return at the end to bring about the end times. Um, so there was there were different different people responding to it differently, but certainly there was a you know you can see a thread of of this um, idea not not going away. Um, certainly, um, and then we get to Augustine, and I do find Augustine very interesting because he is such a he he was so influential, particularly in the Middle Ages. So um, what Augustine said was was obviously taken very very seriously, and, and um, he did not think that Nero was the Antichrist. He did not think we should interpret Paul in that way in particular. Um, he did not think the mystery of iniquity, uh, the mystery of iniquity and the man of lawlessness uh, responded to a person. He thought they were concepts. He thought they were ideas um, that that um, were about the workings of good and evil in the relationship between the city of God and the city of man, which is, and, and this comes in his, his sort of great work, the city of God. Um, and so he understands things on a very different, you know, far less uh, literal, I would say, um, level. And that, I think, then becomes quite um, pervasive. We do get references to Nero as the Antichrist after um, after uh, um, Augustine, uh, particularly his disciples carry on with that. Uh, some of those ideas, Erosius, when he's writing his potted history um, and also uh, um, also 
Quadral Deus, another um, another Christian author, makes mention of it, uh, reference to it as well. Um, and then it does come up in other biblical interpretations of Revelation in particular. So it does crop up again um, in later works. But what I find interesting is that there's no development of it after late antiquity. So we don't get new ideas about what this is. And it's mainly resigned to Nero is maybe the first beast in Revelation is probably the first beast in Revelation. He is 666. That becomes the, the way of, of sort of understanding, um, that piece of biblical, uh, literature for some, um, but not, not very, pervasively so in um of course in in the middle ages going into later periods as well um we get a whole sort of plethora of different ways of understanding the antichrist and we're not in that sort of roman emperor context anymore and nero becomes less useful and and what we do see for example is other figures um sort of being able to take up that role for example um popes so unsuccessful popes or popes who were decided that it should they should be perceived as unsuccessful after their deaths um then become prime candidates for being constructed as the antichrist um in you know ways where you can make lots of names add up to 666 if you want to and you can bring out those traits of tyranny and, and murder and, and capriciousness and and all of those sorts of things to uh to to understand the antichrist for an audience who for whom um, Nero isn't necessarily as useful anymore. Um, he is certainly the archetype, is still a tyrant. He's still very much understood as a tyrant, but perhaps a more, a more relevant example would be in later periods, a Pope or, or an, another leader. Um, of course, you can imagine with the Reformation that goes in all sorts of different directions <laughs> as well. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. And the final section of your book, Shushma, talks about the way in which the idea of Nero's Antichrist gets revived in the 19th century. And there, as you explained, it's very much in the context of intra-Christian debate uh, and concern, I think, among many of your, well, several of your 19th century subjects that actually more needs to be done to pull Christians together. And, and, and so to find an alternative Antichrist figure. And so you give us uh, a Catholic thinker, a Protestant thinker, and someone who's moving between the two uh, to, to help us see how that happens in the 19th century. Could you briefly just talk us through what that section of the book was all about? 
Sure. So this the 19th century reception of Nero is so fascinating because the idea is developed again. So it's it's picked up and it's run with in in a really interesting way. It's like you say by um, uh, my my examples are Ernest Cunon, who is is Catholic, Frederick William Farrow, who's who's Protestant, and then Oscar Wilde, who might seem like the odd one out there, but actually isn't because he is very interested in lots of the themes and he. Um, he knows his Hanan, he knows his Farah, he was, he, you know, we know from his book request lists and, and all sorts of things that he had copies of, of these books. And he was a great reader of Hanan, actually, when he was at university as well. But the the idea of what happens in the 19th century is, is that... Um, in order to kind of un- understand or, or to, to give a historical perspective, if you like, to some of the um, sectarian debates that are going on. So think of the Oxford movement and the rise of Anglo-Catholicism um, in this period, uh, John Henry Newman, um, John Keeble, uh, these sorts of, of people. Um, we get also the idea of, of uh Papal Antichrist coming back in as a reaction to that um, in quite a profound way. Um, we also have a particularly controversial Pope at this time as well. Um, and in order to sort of give uh, come back at that, one of the things Ernest Cunon does when he writes his seven-volume history of Christianity is he dedicates the fourth volume to Nero, and it's called The Antichrist. And he says, no, look, look back at your sources, look back at your Lactantius, look back at your Augustine. And um, even though Augustine doesn't believe him, he still cites him, <laughs> but doesn't believe it, but... Um, he says, look back at, the, at your late antiquity, look back at your church fathers. Um, it isn't the Pope, it isn't anyone that we, uh, contemporary political figures, it's Nero. Nero is the Antichrist. You know, read your, read your sources and you will, you will see this. Um, but one of the interesting things that Hanan does is he, he not only talks about Nero coming back at the time of the apocalypse, Nero shall be the beast, he will be the Antichrist. Um, uh, in, in a context of revelation, he also makes Nero's reign itself feel like an apocalypse when he's describing it, because he's writing an account of Nero. His seven volume history of Christianity goes from the life of Jesus to Marcus Aurelius. In historical terms, he's in the first century AD. And um, Frederick William Farrer runs with this. Um, he really does. And, and he knows Renan's work as well, cites him regularly, not just that book but others too his life of, of of christ in particular and um we we get a re- rendering then through um frederick william farrer in a two-volume historical novel called darkness and dawn or scenes from the days of nero um in in historical fiction so much more popular than Hanan's antichrist um a, a conception of Nero's reign as the apocalypse. So that's a really kind of interesting and vivid and um, moving as well way of, of of talking about Nero's role, putting Nero's role into a di- giving it a different different resonance, making Nero himself not not a, a reborn Nero, but Nero himself is the Antichrist during his reign. Um, he also, um, uh, Frederick William Farrer, uh, rewrites sort of history, if you like, to say that John, St. John was probably in, John of Patmos even, was probably in um, Rome during this period. He writes him in as a character. He makes um, Nero's 
stepbrother and uh, first wife, uh, who are brother and sister, uh, Britannicus and Octavia, as sort of proto-Christian figures. And um, actually has, um, you know, one of them convert. And th- there, there are these, um, you know, obviously very clear historical sort of like, like uh, uh, playing around here he's taking um quite a few liberties with the history but um he does create this absolutely extraordinary picture of a neronian period as an apocalyptic period um as as john would then go on to write it in revelation he makes that very clear connection um so that then kind of goes on into later film history um one of the novels that Farah influenced um, extremely was uh, Heinrich Sienkiewicz's Quo Vadis, which then goes on into film history. And of course, the immortal Peter Ustinov um, uh, plays Nero in the, in the 1950s. Um, but before before we get there, as it were, one of the other people who uh, really plays around or, or tries to understand Nero from the perspective of um, religion, but also from the perspective of how that religious history fits with with Nero's um, reign is Oscar Wilde. And it might not sound like it's an obvious um, place to go with Oscar Wilde, but actually um, reading his letters in particular, um, this isn't this doesn't come through his plays. Of course, those familiar with his plays will be wondering what on earth I'm talking about. But um, a little bit in his um, in his picture of Dorian Gray in the chapter where he talks about Nero and he talks about um, the decadence of Nero. We get sort of some some understandings of how he's construing Nero as a um, an emperor, as a decadent figure. Nero was an artist as well. Um, he was um, sort of an emperor who acted on stage. That's one of the reasons why um, some historians really hated him, uh, because to have an emperor acting on stage was, was quite a scandal. So for for Nero to be on the one hand the emperor aesthete, he is the ideal for some of the people in the decadent movements, also to have this very profound uh, reception history that is circulating at the time, the 1880s, the 1890s. Um, Ernest Renan wrote in 1873, Frederick William Farrer, the early 1890s. Um, and and picture picture of Dorian Gray sort of comes in in between those as it were, um, and you get you get the idea that lots of these ideas are swirling around in in Oscar Wilde's head, and they come out through his letters. Um, he talks about uh, his own per- Oscar Wilde talks about his own personal kind of um, relationship with both Catholicism and Protestantism, because on the one hand, he comes from a Protestant family, but Catholicism has always fascinated him. He um, plays around with the idea of conversion, particularly when he's at university at Oxford, at the Oxford of John Henry Newman. Um, so it's all sort of tying up together. But he um, he he very much uses Nero, I think, as a way to understand how these ideas can go together, how decadence and religion and sin and scandal work together in the body of one person, because that is also Nero. It, it's it's wild. He he sort of uses Nero as, as a way to, to talk about um, lots of the things that happened to him, particularly when he goes to jail and he writes about his life with um, Alfred Douglas, uh, the life that got him convicted of gross indecency in 1895. Um, um, he talks about his 
his his productivity and his lack of it and then he talks about his religion and, and this the way to understand um christ as the supreme individual um it's philosophically of course um driven it's it's theologically driven but it's also driven or also used to articulate those drivers is is nero he is he is a sinner um and he is also the antichrist but he can be redeemed and that's one of the things that wilde says about nero that he can be redeemed um and as nero can be redeemed so can so can wilde as it as it were um and Nero works wonderfully as a way to articulate all of these things precisely because he is so multi-layered. He is the emperor of the first century. He's the emperor who got up on stage and acted. He is the emperor who is supposed to have killed his mother, to have killed his some of his wives and um, two of his wives. He is the emperor who... Um, on the other hand, was a, um, a popular with the people who, after his death, um, you know, some said that he was still alive, wished him still to be alive. He was popular enough to get a following in the He then becomes the Antichrist. And um, all of those things together, um, which gets entry, all of these kind of ideas floating around at work so imaginatively in Oscar Wilde's letters and in his in some of his works um in the way that he thinks about um all of these things that that he's a wonderful person to study for uh for Nero hmm. well Shushma Malik it's been great talking to you today about your new book the Nero Antichrist founding and fashioning a paradigm just published by Cambridge University Press before we wind up today could you tell us what you are working on next what we might be able to look forward to seeing in the future <laughs> Oh, uh, wonderful. Yes. Um, so at the moment, I'm working on a uh, project that's um, uh, I'm collaborating on with a colleague at Roehampton and also with um, colleagues in, in Germany as well. It's it's a, a British and German project um, funded by the HRC and the DFG. And that's on corruption. So it's on it's called Twisted Transfers. And we're looking at ideas of, of corruption, um, which, of course, kind of have uh, some some relationships back to some of this um, uh, things we've been talking about as well. But I'm also thinking about how um, corruption is is articulated in, in historiography of um, the imperial period. So under the emperors um, in in various different ways. So in terms of power transfer of the emperors, but also in terms of um, other transfers that take place, for example, citizenship, the widening of citizenship, I'm very interested in as well. So uh, that's that's what's next. <laughs> great. Well, that sounds like a great project and exciting, oh, especially with the collaboration. <laughs> But anyway, yeah. thank you for your time today and for coming on to the show to talk about this new book, The Nero Antichrist, Founding and Fashioning a Paradigm, just published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you for your time and take care. Thank you so much. Thanks. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.